Welcome to this podcast from Smyrna Baptist Church in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Smyrna Baptist exists to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ, and our prayer is that this podcast would be used to the same end. We hope that you find this content to be meaningful and helpful as you journey on with Christ in the coming days. Point to Ponder, October 2nd, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5. Sunday's sermon required us to parachute into a passage, which is somewhat unique at Smyrna. Typically, we like to preach chronologically as we work our way through various books of the Bible verse by verse. The thinking is that God's Word was given to us in distinct units or books, and we must benefit from studying in this manner. One of the benefits of this method of study is that context is generally understood. We would not typically preach 1 Corinthians 11 before we preach 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, and so on, and this means that certain truths and themes would be covered prior to our arrival at this passage. So my goal for today's devotion is to give you a small snippet of context that might help unpack some of the more challenging assertions that Paul makes in Sunday's text. The Bible says that the cause of some of the Corinthians' death was tied to their unfaithful and sinful observance of the Lord's Supper. It is clear that the reason behind this outcome is the Corinthians' sin and God's judgment, and this makes some people incredibly uncomfortable. Could it be that these people were literally killed by their sin? Actually, yes. It interests me how little people consider the gravity of sin in light of the raft of Scripture that speaks very candidly about sin's eternal and temporal consequence. The Bible makes no bones about the fact that sin is deadly, so why does it shock us so much that people die as a consequence of their sin? One possible retort to my hypothetical question would be grounded in the fact that these people who died were members of the church. It is clear in Paul's writing that he is speaking about Corinthian congregants who are sick and dead, and this means that we must either assert that these people were false converts, or we must deal with the possibility that sin can still physically kill believers. To be clear, I'm not sure which camp these men and women belong to, but I do know that the Bible absolutely affirms the fact that sin has consequences, even for believers. Our text today demonstrates this fact as we read of a time in which the Corinthians were motivated by Paul and the Spirit to put out a man in habitual, non-repentant sin for the, quote, destruction of his flesh. The point that Paul is making here is that the Corinthians should disassociate from this man for a season so that the fleshliness that he is walking in could lead to its guaranteed consequence. Essentially, Paul is telling the Corinthians to allow this man to walk in the error and judgment of his ways. The reason I bring this up is simply to highlight the fact that eternal grace and salvation from sin does not mean a free pass from the ugly consequence of sin in this life. We are absolutely saved from the eternal wrath of God. But this does not mean that God will look the other way as we habitually and willfully forsake His commandments. O believer, if you are trifling today with sin, put it away. God has guaranteed safe passage to eternity for those who believe, but He has just as clearly informed us that the vestiges of sin that remain are to be put to death by His grace and not entertained in our flesh. Point to Ponder, October 3rd, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6. Some people react in an unfavorable way when we talk about the idea that God still orchestrates consequences for those He has redeemed. Some people think that grace constitutes a free pass to pursue anything and everything the heart desires, with a guarantee that God will intervene to spare His children from any consequence. The problem with this idea is that it is both unbiblical and morally repugnant to suggest such a thing about God. 
Let me deal with those two assertions in reverse order today. First, God would be morally wrong to allow his children to continue in sin. Here's the biblical teaching. Sin is destructive. God has said as much over and over again, therefore to allow his child to continue in that which harms them is not an act of love, but an act of hate. God cannot and will not act like the father of a spoiled child who refuses to discipline his son or daughter, but rather bails them out of trouble no matter the harm they do to themselves or others. Second, it is unbiblical. The Bible tells us that a mark of God's love toward us is his discipline, and his discipline follows our sin. The very fact that God convicts, corrects, and admonishes us is a great sign that he indeed loves us. If he did not love us, he would allow us to continue in our sin, but in light of what the author of Hebrews tells us, he absolutely chastises us because he loves us. Now to the text from Sunday. Are we saying that one motivation for God's killing the Corinthians could be love? If they were truly redeemed, the answer is yes. It is more loving for God to take us off this planet and usher us into his presence than for him to allow us to live in sinful pursuits and the depravity we desire. Furthermore, this is consistent with his character. We see in this act of judgment both his love for his child and pulling them from that which would harm them, and his love for his name which is sullied when his children refuse to walk in righteousness. The point then is that sin has this level of consequence, even for believers at times. Folks, I cannot count the number of times that I have seen people who I believe were truly saved fall into sin that resulted in temporal judgment. While it is undoubtedly true that those who are saved avoid God's eternal condemnation, we must understand that sin is still wicked, and it still has ramifications. Those of us who are believers need to grasp the fact that God is not a derelict dad. He will ensure that his children are disciplined in order to lead them to avoid that which harms them, and he will do what is necessary to keep us from sin while guarding his name in the process. Point to Ponder, October 4th, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 11-15 to 15. The goal of this week's devotion is to demonstrate the reality that sin has grave consequences, even for the redeemed. Whether you ultimately believe that the people mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11 were saved or not, there are plenty of other texts in the scripture that affirm the fact that sin leads to grave consequences, even for believers. Today's text is a prime example of this truth in shocking clarity. The text describes the interaction that took place between Nathan, God's prophet, and David, a man who was undoubtedly a believer and is even described elsewhere as a man after God's own heart. The point that we must begin with, therefore, is that David is absolutely saved, and yet the consequences of his sin is incredibly severe and long-lasting. David's sin is well-documented and no doubt familiar to most of you. It would probably suffice to simply assert that David was guilty of both adultery and murder. This was brought to his attention and his repentance quickly followed, the sign of a true believer, by the way. Nevertheless, his repentance did not result in freedom from temporal consequence. Instead, the Bible says that as a result, a very important point to grasp, of David's sin, his newborn son would die and his family would live in constant turmoil for generations to come. The transition that takes place in the biblical narrative of David's life from this point forward is unmistakably stark. His life had been gloriously and richly blessed. His family had prospered, his kingdom had prospered, and his name was greatly respected. From this moment forward, as a product of David's transgression, the family would be a wreck, his kingdom would be in turmoil, and his name would be mud in the eyes of many. Today, David worships at the feet of Jesus. 
He was indeed saved, and now he is home, but his journey was needlessly difficult because he chose to rebel against the clear law of God during the fateful season of revolt. The logic in the text is unmistakably clear. It is a result of sin that leads to these catastrophic outcomes, and no amount of repentance, which genuinely takes place, will circumvent the outcome. Folks, while David was saved from eternal torment, he was not spared from temporal pain, and this is true not just of David, but of all of us. I suppose what we are trying to emphasize, in a nutshell, is that the sin you are cherishing and trifling with will harm you, and God should not be expected to not intervene. He will allow the pain of your transgression to be brought to bear on your life for His glory and the good of you, who need to know that your rebellion is gravely serious. Point to Ponder, October 5th, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. We are attempting to establish the fact that sin has grave temporal consequences for true children of God. Whereas we understand that the wages of sin is death, and death entails not just momentary but eternal torment for unbelievers, we must also grasp the fact that sin still brings penalties, some of them stark, for true disciples. Today's passage fixated on yet another hero of the faith. When a person is asked to list the most important figures in Scripture, the names Moses and David should always be included in the catalog. Yesterday's passage detailed the consequence of David's sin, but a possible retort to that example would be that David's sin was the worst of the worst. After all, few things are worse than sleeping with another man's wife and then having that man killed. So the logic goes, perhaps this was just an example of God taking drastic action towards a person because of the immense gravity and severity of his sin. If you believe this to be the case, today's text demonstrates that real consequences follow sins that might seem a bit more mundane. You'll remember that Moses' sin was an outburst of anger, and to be fair, most of us probably can understand how Moses got to that point. He had been leading this ragtag bunch of malcontents through the desert for years at the point of his moment of rage. What came out is understandable, really. How many of us haven't lost it after a day's hard work or when dealing with especially trying people? or when trying to rein in the kids during the last, most trying hour before bedtime. We all understand why Moses reacted the way he did, and because we have all been there, his sin might seem a bit more excusable. If that is your view, the text before us today shows us that God doesn't share your opinion. Moses had been leading the people of Israel for nearly 40 years at this point, and the desired destination was just ahead. For 40 years, Moses had been told about the promised land. There were Undoubtedly many days and nights spent thinking and dreaming about coming into that precious, beautiful place, and now the people were on the precipice of realizing the blessed destination when God informs Moses that he would not be with the people when they entered the land. Why would God not allow Moses' entry? Because of his sin. You see, God had seen the outburst as well. He sees all things, and he had deemed that this kind of behavior required a pretty severe consequence. The line in the text is unmistakable and inarguable. Moses was not allowed to enter into the blessing of the promised land because of sin. One moment of transgression cost Moses the joy of a lifetime. The point is obvious. Sin results in judgment, and that judgment is not totally reserved for the life to come. While Moses escaped eternal judgment and entered the great promised land, he did suffer the loss of a more fleeting but genuine blessing because of his transgression. If our loving Father would discipline Moses for his sin, why do we believe he wouldn't do the same for us? Point to Ponder, October 6th, Hebrews 13, 8, and John 10, 30. 
Unfortunately, many in our churches have presented this false dichotomy between the New Testament and the Old Testament as it relates to how God interacts with His people. I have heard it said that the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the New Testament records a God of grace. The thought seems to be that God has somehow changed. Perhaps He was angry at some previous moment in history, but now He has decided to soften His old age, deciding to show grace instead of anger. I hope that you all have a better understanding of the nature of God, as revealed in the Bible, but just in case, perhaps it would be helpful to talk about the consistency of God's character. The term that theologians use to describe the unchanging nature of God is divine immutability. Immutability is defined by Wilhelmus Abrockel as a perfection of God, by which he is devoid of all change, not only in his being, but also in his perfections, and in his purpose and promises. God doesn't change, and this is what Hebrews and John both affirm to the reader. This is good news. It means that we can trust God and know that He is always dependable. We never catch God at a bad time, nor do we have to worry that He might have a bad day and react in anger. He is always consistent, always acting out of the same nature of His being. He is an enduring God whose character and attributes are always the same. This is hard to grasp for finite creatures. You see, I am always changing. I hope and pray that my transformation is a good thing, that I am being sanctified and growing in my spiritual walk, but the reality is that I am a dynamic being, and so are you, and that is one point of differentiation between you and God. God does not change because God cannot change, and this fact means that the God we see in the Old Testament is the same as the God we see in the New Testament. This does not mean that this plan of redemption doesn't unfold, and it doesn't mean that we have the same level of revelation that a previous generation of saint possessed, but it does mean that we should expect him to interact with his children in the same manner. The point for this week, therefore, is that the way God sees and judges sin in the life of Moses and David and the like is consistent with the same way that God would see and judge the sin in our lives. Whereas he spared both of these children eternal damnation, he also levied sufficient momentary penalty upon them for their sin. He is an unchanging God, and this means we must see how he has interacted with his people in his word and trust that he will relate to us in the exact same manner. So, do we have proof that God interacted with his children in the New Testament in the same way as the Old? I believe we do, and we will see it in tomorrow's devotion. Point to Ponder, October 7th, Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. Today's passage is precious to many believers. It shows the ability of God to forgive and restore, even after a person's entire life has been lived in defiance of him. Most of you know the context. Jesus was crucified, but he wasn't crucified alone. Instead, the Bible tells us that he was hung in between two criminals. These two men were rightly convicted of being guilty of committing crimes, and now they were hanging for their transgressions. The great separator between Christ and them was not in the mode of their death, but in the validity of their sentence. These men were guilty, and they were dying because of their guilt, but that's not the point for today. What I want us to consider for a moment is one aspect of this story that probably hasn't been contemplated too often. We rightly understand the main truth of the passage to be the grace of God in Christ, It is simply breathtaking to consider the fact that God would forgive someone who lived their entire life in sin and even salted him just prior to his conversion. See Matthew 27, 44. This man lived all but the final few breaths of his life in rebellion against God, and yet God, by his unmatched grace and mercy, still saved him. 
What a marvelous picture of the love of our Lord and Savior, and what a sign of hope for all those who still pray for their rebellious loved one's salvation. Don't stop, dear brother or sister. God is able to save even the most ardent sinners. Those truths are glorious and obviously the main truth of this passage of Scripture. However, there is another portion of this account that merits mention today, and that is the fact that the thief made it to paradise, but only after he died as a result of his crimes. You see, Jesus spared the thief from the eternal torment of hell, and he forgave him for his actions, but he did not, therefore, allow him to be freed from the cross. Instead, the thief hung and died for his sins. The point I am making is hopefully somewhat clear at this point. It was the thief's sins that were forgiven forever, but it was also the thief's sins that caused him to die in slow and painful death. And while that death led to eternal life, it still had to be navigated because of a life of crime. Folks, my hope and prayer for you is that you would see the biblical testimony and understand that sin has consequences. May we work in the Spirit and by God's grace to avoid such things precisely because we believe and desire to live a blessed life. God's desire is your good. He has proven that by sending His Son to die on the cross to secure your eternal security in Him, but His desire for good is also a desire for your holiness. And this means that He will absolutely allow you to suffer temporal consequences for your sins as a deterrent and sign of the gravity of those transgressions against Him. May we not trifle with sin. May we not act as if our transgression won't bring pain. May we not be guilty of continuing to sin so that grace may abound. But instead, may we live in the faithful vitality that Christ has imparted to us through His blood brought redemption and in the indwelling Spirit that now resides within. Point to Ponder, October 8th, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. So perhaps we should finish this week's devotion with a bit of a positive admonition. I could summarize the devotions this week rather simply by saying that my goal is to show you the severity of sin and to encourage you to avoid it for God's glory and for your temporal blessing. While we have been quite careful to affirm the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, see Romans chapter 8, we have also attempted to demonstrate that it is God's love that demands punishment, as a loving God cannot allow us to subsist in that which harms us and damages his reputation without intervention. Now, I want to end with a more positive affirmation of what we should be doing. Sometimes the church has been guilty of emphasizing the don'ts without providing a similar treatment of the do's. Our biblical conviction at Smyrna is that the Christian life is one of active obedience. We are not to be genuinely and totally pursuing Christ in just some things. We are to genuinely and totally pursue Christ in all that we do. The pinnacle of the Christian life is not abstinence from sin, it is pursuit of good and worthy ends. This is what Paul is driving at in our text today, and it provides a good and enriching truth that helps us think about obedience versus sin. If the Corinthians simply considered this admonition and their observance of the Lord's Supper, they would have avoided the problems that caused their sickness and death. The fundamental thought that guards us from sin is this, will this action lead to God's glory? If it does, and if it can, then we can pursue it with vigor. To be clear, this does not mean that all we will ever do is religious stuff. Certainly, we should pray and read our Bibles and go to church and the like, but this is a truncated view of what constitutes glory-giving in the Christian life. We can do many things and give God glory. We can eat good food and glorify the God who gave us taste buds. We can play games with friends and thank God for happiness and good relationships. 
We can glorify God through joyful gatherings that demonstrate to the world a portion of the hope that He has purchased for us. However, we cannot glorify God in disobedience to Him. When the Corinthians decided to ostracize half of the congregation from the supper because they had less to give to the meal, they were operating in a way that could not glorify God. When David knowingly violated the commandments, God gave an adultery and murder, and when Moses flew off the handle in rage, they were doing that which could not bring God glory. Most of life's decisions can really boil down to how does this reflect upon my Savior? When we can answer with the affirmation that God is glorified in and through a certain action, we can pursue it heartily. When we cannot, we should pause understanding that we should have an answer before we move forward.